Welcome to episode 2 of Not High Yet. I'm Kenzo and today we will be answering some more questions, dishing out some more advice and discussing a topic which has been very prominent this week. Uh, I've been doing an intensive driving course and my instructor Trevor and I have been chatting about anything from capital punishment to movies to music to a interesting pseudoscientific theory that he has and it's something that piqued my interest and I started to wonder why people believe in these unproven, these sometimes very bizarre stories or things that give us answers for why we are who we are. And I guess that's something that I wanted to look into. And so why not? So my driving instructor brought this up to me by saying that I seem like a blood type O. In fact, he thinks that I'm definitely a blood type O according to my personality and what he's seen of me behind the wheel. And I was curious to see what this means. He was saying that a blood type O person is very bold, outgoing, likes adventure, isn't nervous, likes to eat red meat because that's good for them and gets on well with other people. He said that blood type A's are more reserved, they're better at digesting wheat, they're quieter, they're more anxious and he gave actually quite a damning definition. When I got home and looked further into this, I realised that this blood type personality theory was actually a thing. It was developed in 1927 in Japan and it was developed in response to kind of European racial stereotypes and it was never really taken very seriously in Europe. However, in Japan and in Eastern Asia, for example, Korea and China, it was actually taken very seriously and led to discrimination. And some people weren't allowed certain jobs based on their blood type, which is fascinating. I guess what interested me more is the passion that my driving instructor felt for it and the fact that he ascribed almost everything I did to that being my blood type and it was a definite sign of my personality and I kind of I feel like this is very similar to horoscopes and astrology where you know there are the 12 signs and each one has personality types and personality traits and people believe these very vague general ideas about themselves and it gives you a sense of comfort almost so why do people believe in it well for exactly those reasons it's kind of people want to feel connected and they want to feel feel comforted in this age where there is no overarching emotional belief structure and no really rewarding belief structure it's comforting to think that somebody understands you or thinking that that you're connected to other people in this way and people get people will pay a lot of money to go to psychics to tell them who that what they're like and to to tell them flattering things and sometimes things that aren't so flattering and I guess that means that having somebody have an insight into you makes you feel like somebody knows you and you have this human connection if just for a moment and and as Sharma points out in his 2002 book why people believe weird things pseudoscience superstition and other confusions of our time sometimes therapy and in-depth 
analysis of yourself can take time and it's expensive. Whereas when you have these answers for who you are and why you are like you are, then this is instant. Like if you call up a psychic on the phone, it can immediately tell you who you are and it makes you feel like somebody knows you even though it's a complete stranger and it makes you feel like the way you are is connected to loads of other people. And like I've mentioned before, this is what a lot of people feel they're missing and so people can attach their beliefs and they can find this belief system which makes them feel connected to others in a world where religion and community is broken down and I think that's fascinating and I think you know what good on Trevor for believing that blood type connects us all through personality seeing as it makes him happy and it makes him feel like he's connected to others you know it's what we're all searching for and if people have found their explanation then good for them I'm quite jealous and I wish that I had a belief system because I feel lost and confused and like nothing that I see in the world around me is real and that frankly is terrifying anyway on that delightful note to your questions hey up it's 29 year old man from Bradford is it true that posh spice can sniff three lines at same time flicking through posh spice's autobiography now known as Victoria Beckham's autobiography learning to fly there is no such claim the Spice Girls, however, uh, do admit to drug taking. Some of them, Victoria Beckham included, discuss eating disorders. So they, the Spice Girls were plagued with their own personal demons. Victoria Beckham, however, in her autobiography, unfortunately I didn't have time to read it all, but she does have an attitude of holier-than-thou. But saying that, her ex-boyfriend died of a drug overdose and some of the Spice Girls were definitely using drugs. So she has been around it and whether she is just not talking about it for her media image, however, I feel that perhaps she may have sold more books if she discussed getting over a drug addiction. And her lifestyle and her general attitude make it seem fairly clear that no, she probably has never done that. Hello. I'm a 28-year-old female from Bristol and I wanted to know what is sassafras because I first heard of this uh, as a natural form of MDMA used by young people in Bristol when they were going out and they uh, said it was it was best than MDMA because it was a more natural form. Anyway, I didn't think anything of it because these new weird, strange-sounding drugs come up every year, uh, though I didn't try it. And um, and I just came across it again in my aromatherapy um, as an oil that should not be used therapeutically because of its toxicity. So here is the notes on sassafras. is 80 to 90% saffron, phenol, highly toxic, carcinogen, irritant, and can cause abortion and I just wondered if there is any link or connection between these two and if that's the case what is it that in it that makes you high and what plant is it from thank you sassafras is the name of a tree that's found in the US and in Cambodia and in the bark and the leaves you can extract saffroli oil 
And this safroli oil traditionally was thought to have medicinal effects by Native Americans, but was then exported to England where its properties were found ineffective and they didn't work. So it was disregarded. However, aside from that, it's been used in ginger beer, it's been used in other root medicines and it's been used to scent perfumes and soaps it's been used as soup thickener it's had a variety of kind of natural flavorsome uses however the oil is also the base of mdma and sassafras has become a synonym for mda now mdma is methylene dioxymethamphetamine and MDA is methylene dioxyamphetamine, so without the meth. They're essentially quite similar, however, MDA, or sassafras, is known to be less speedy, less intense, and more kind of hallucinogenic and more chill. Both drugs, both MDMA and MDA, or sassafras, are very similar, and they both react to the same parts of the body. Therefore, the effects are very similar. However, MDA was actually the original love drug. It was around before MDMA, and it was commonly used in the 60s to the 80s and up to the mid-90s. And apparently, it's well, it's kind of, it's come around in circles. Every time the MDMA or the ecstasy quality starts to drop, MDA kind of comes back onto the market as an alternative. Many people won't even really notice the difference. The reasons why you shouldn't use it in aromatherapy is generally because it's considered carcinogenic and also for the reasons you said, it's neurotoxic and it can cause abortion. So yeah, bad idea. However, if you want to get high and you want to feel kind of hallucinogenic and you don't really care about that, which, you know, generally we don't in terms of our recreational drug use, then yeah, go for it. Hi, 22-year-old from West Yorkshire. If I was walking along Brighton Beach and I accidentally stood on a needle, would I die? Nah, you wouldn't necessarily die. Speaking from experience as someone who's been accidentally stabbed with a smacky needle, the best thing to do is just to head down to your GP and just to get a full sexual health test just in case it's HIV or hepatitis infected if you've had your hep c jabs then that's even better because it reduces the risk of that but yeah obviously clean it up make sure that you clean around the wound so that you don't you know you don't get it infected or anything avoid walking along needly areas with bare feet but you know if if it is hiv infected there's medicine you can take there's prep which is for pre-exposure or pep which is post-exposure you can go and you can take a month-long course of that and hopefully you should then be okay but yeah no it's pretty unlikely you're gonna die from experience hi uh 33 year old man from reading here if one was to get absolutely munted with his besties what would be the best drugs avenue to go down? Thanks. Hmm, uh, I would definitely recommend ecstasy, MDMA or acid, depending on how you're feeling. Obviously acid is a bit of a commitment, but it will be, hopefully if it's a good trip, a lot of fun. Uh, but obviously you've got to know your boundaries and know whether you are in an okay enough mental state to be able to handle it because the risk of you going on a really bad trip and going to a really horrible place is very real ecstasy is you'll generally always have a good time on it you'll get pretty munted you'll bond with your friends it's generally a good safe bet ideas of taking downers like ketamine or heroin 
or Valium. It's probably not such a good idea just because they're not very sociable, like Valium, although it'll make you feel quite nice. It will also make you sleep really well and really nicely, but you know, it's probably not what you want. And ketamine is not so conversational, same with heroin. Cocaine and speed, they're not so much the munted type drugs, although they're fun, you're still pretty alert and still pretty sensible. So you're not quite that like stupid, out of control, munted person that you are with ecstasy or silly, hilarious, adventurous type as you can quite often be with acid. So yeah, that's what I'd recommend, I reckon. As with any drug taking experience, I'd advise making sure you know how to do it safely, looking after yourself before, during and after, and being responsible and not taking so much that you cause yourself or anyone else an injury. Always be safe and be responsible. We're going to take a short break from the calls now as we look at the more legal and political side of drug taking with an interview with Transform's Danny Kushlik. Hi and welcome. We've got Danny with us here today. He's going to talk a little bit about what he does and his politics and kind of his work that he's been doing with Transform, which is an NGO which looks at the reformation and decriminalisation of drugs in the UK. Go for it. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> That's all right. So Transform. I, I founded Transform for my sins 25 odd years ago when I was a a drug counsellor at Bristol Drugs Project. So I was working with high-tariff offenders who were in danger of going to prison and I was seeing them as part of a probation order. And it became very clear to me that the problems that they faced were either caused or exacerbated by the fact that their drugs were illegal. Also, I have been a long-term user of both legal and illegal drugs. And my use of illegal drugs led me to the conclusion that the state doesn't have a right to interfere in my privacy. But it was really working with, with, with problematic drug users that, that really catalyzed my, my desire to actually change the situation for those people. My concerns as a middle class drug user were, were nothing compared to the problems that my clients faced, which were almost invariably sexual abuse, emotional neglect, they all had drug-dependent parents, they'd all been in care, they all had unresolved bereavements. It was the same issues that came up again and again and again. And it became obvious to me that, 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 that criminalising these people, because there is no war on drugs, drugs aren't criminalised, it's people that are. And that is just an abhorrent thing to do to anybody who is already in a difficult situation. So I set up Transform, which is now internationally recognised NGO, think tank, and campaign group to end the war on drugs and replace it with a system of control and regulation, basically putting drugs back into the hands of doctors, pharmacists and licensed retailers. Amazing. How, how do you think that's been received? Because obviously the idea of the war on drugs is a massively prevalent um, idea and this, the government very much pushes a zero tolerance policy. So how has the work that you've been doing been received in the kind of the general public eye? Well, again, it's, it's how it's been received in the UK is very different than how it's been received in other parts of the world. So it's always been a struggle here. And for the first, certainly the first 15, almost 20 years, politically, 
aside from Green Party and the Lib Dems, it was very difficult to get political engagement. Still is really hard with the major parties. And ultimately, if you want to change legislation, you have to influence them. And they're only just in the very early stages of beginning to engage. Outside of that, though, in terms of the media um, and work with other NGOs, over the la- certainly over the last five years or so, mm. or maybe less than that, three, two or three years, things have begun to shift to the point where the Times, the Times of London now supports legalisation of all drugs. Wow. But so does the Prison, uh, Prison Governors Association is also very critical of the war on drugs. Um, and that's effectively the, the, the sort of professional association for prison governors. So, and, and, and there is increasing engagement now. But in other places, for instance, uh, Canada, we, we advise the Canadian government on how to legalise cannabis. So it, it depends where you are and how brave politicians are in terms of shifting away from, from the status quo. Where they are, we work with them. Um, and where they don't, we, we, we basically work to change the environment such that when politicians are ready to shift, they can. Yeah, great. Because research that the drug legislation hasn't changed, it's one of the oldest kind of long-standing laws that hasn't changed since it was introduced, whereas a lot of other laws have been modified and they've evolved with the times. And this, the drugs legislation has been very static. Why do you think that it's been so static? And why do you think there is this resistance, especially in the UK? Mm. You say it's been more open internationally. Mm. It's a, it's a really good question. The, the, if you look at the way that the drug laws were set up, um, so it's really over the last hundred years that prohibition has been developing around one drug or another. Um, and let's not forget that alcohol, they made an attempt with alcohol in the US between 1920 and 1932, which ended disastrously and they re-legalised it. Um, it was better to have um, uh, alcohol in the hands of big alcohol which is pretty unpleasant, than, than it was to have it in the hands of the Mafia, um, which, which is really unpleasant. So our contemporary prohibition was brought into place uh, at the beginning of the 60s, 1961, at the United Nations of all places, to be running a war. So the, 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 the United Nations Single Convention on Drugs came into being in 1961, very much pushed by the US, predominantly because, well, it was kind of a conceit, really. It was, it was predicated on xenophobia, fear and hatred of um, foreigners. So people will often talk about it as a failed attempt to stop people using drugs, a failed attempt to improve public health. It isn't. It never was. It was an attempt to keep Chinese, Hispanic and Afro-Caribbean men, predominantly, and, and women, I guess, certainly men out of the US labour market, there were real fears that, that uh, an influx of immigrants was going to mean less jobs. Um, it wasn't just that, it was, it was socially, it was, or it was politically useful to socially control um, a group of people who were identified as the other domestically. But it also then became a tool of foreign policy. So it was advantageous for the US to be able to go wandering around in other people's countries under the auspices of the war on drugs when they were actually just kind of doing what the US does in terms of empire building and neo-colonialism. But what's interesting about the the prohibition is that there, there are only two 
um, United Nations conventions that use the word evil to describe the threat. Um, one is a, a convention on prostitution and the other one is the drugs, the single convention on drugs. And it's, it, I didn't know this until very recently, the, the United Nations and human rights um, per se were, were advocated for very strongly by the Catholic Church. So at the same time as wanting to enshrine a rights-based framework, they also were very keen to identify things which they thought were beyond the pale. One of them was drug use, and clearly what the, other, the other one was prostitution. So that's why the term, it, it, and it's used literally in, in the convention, it says evil. It talks about wow. drug use and, and, and dealing as, uh, as evil. So then when you, you move forward 50 years, 60 years from then to now, and you look at the difficulties of ending uh, the prohibition, ending the drug war, you're talking about altering a whole mindset that identifies a group of people as evil to tolerating them. And there are clear links here between the LGBT movement and abortion law reform and, and progressive moves to undo draconian legislation that is intended to stop people doing wicked things. And you can see then why it's difficult politically to suggest that, for instance, bringing the, the early termination of a human life, which is clearly against God's wishes, or changing your state of consciousness using particular drugs that the Catholic Church didn't like. And let's, like, and let's not forget that the Catholic Church uses wine and has always used wine in its communion. That these particular things then are imbued with a sense of evil and wickedness, that it's really difficult to, to, for a politician to turn around and go, well, it's actually okay now. Unless you have very uh, principled politicians who are willing to, 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 to push something. Interestingly, the last major change in terms of progressive lawmaking that came out of the Home Office in the United Kingdom was in 1967 when uh, Roy Jenkins was Home Secretary and almost single-handedly brought in abortion law reform, ended the death penalty and legalised homosexuality. The, the, I mean, and, and that just looks like something that, that is out of Alice in Wonderland yeah. when you look at it now. <laughs> um, the idea that a Home Secretary could be liberal yeah, um, the idea for one person to be able to push through all of these things. Yeah, yeah, it's extraordinary. It's... And not because Roy Jenkins and, and the Labour Party had, had worked hard around focus groups and decided what the public wanted. And the, this was probably done very much against public opinion. They would, it was done because Roy Jenkins... And Roy Jenkins wasn't your, your kind of archetypal liberal either. This is a guy who went on... To, to become one of the Gang of Four and set up the Social Democratic Party, the SDP, who was against the kind of left-wing push that the Labour Party was, in his, in his view, embarking on. And, and so that what, what you're seeing is, is a man who identified civilised society with permissiveness. So think it's the end of the 60s, mid-60s, 
and this is a guy who recognised that, that permissiveness and, and you know, perhaps another word for tolerance mm-hmm. was actually a good thing. Whereas now, yeah, it isn't. Definitely not. In fact, the more separation and the more division and the more demonisation you can have. Yeah, yeah. Weirdly, I mean, against that, you, you, you have the move on, on, on civil marriage, which, which or civil partnerships that, that David Cameron championed. So you, you do have these, these, these moves that can still be made. Do you um, think that, that's, that the reason why these moves are being made is because it's politically and maybe personally as advantageous to their careers? Do you think it, one way that we could perhaps encourage the idea of reform is through framing it in a way that makes it more personally advantageous to the career politician? No, 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 that's absolutely right. The, 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 most politicians, even if they're not prioritising their own career and the political power of their party or their electability over everything else, or still have a weather eye on it, you know, that's still part of what they're there for. And any politician will tell you, you don't get to change law unless you're in power. So they, 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 they're very keen to hang on to power, partly because some of them actually want to do really good things. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't make sense to present anything to a politician that isn't going to be personally advantageous to them, because otherwise it's kind of they're cutting off their nose to spite their face. And they could sacrifice their career um, and just do the right thing, but, but not many, certainly career politicians, it's you know, a clue in the name, aren't, aren't going to do that it's their career but uh, and, and and I think that part of what campaigners when we're at our best we meet people where they are and look at what their priorities are and work towards helping them mm-hmm. achieve them at the same time as achieve, achieving our own goals because it's it's impossible to just kind of rub people up the wrong way and expect them to, to roll over and yeah exactly and so have just... their, their tummy rubbed while you <laughs> change policies around them. I mean, it just isn't going to happen. It's it's it, it is about connecting with people and, and and making sure that you you bring them with you. And that that is the trick. It's hard though. And and at times when politicians are just committed to being tough on crime, tough on drugs, tough on everybody, and don't care about a rising prison population or drug mm-hmm. debts. There isn't much you can do about anything. So yeah, but we're, I think that we're into the last ten years now. Prohibition. It's going to be over, mainly by then. Amazing. What do you see? What do you see as being the future then, or how do you propose to kind of crowbar in this reform? Or well, it's interesting. I mean, I'm I'm at an interesting point in my my kind of professional life. I've been doing this for nearly twenty five years now, and. Whilst I'm still optimistic for change, we, we, we thought it would take 20, 25 years to do what we're doing. There, there are a couple of issues that begin to intervene at this point, which we, we weren't naive enough to think weren't going to happen. Um, but one of them is that the end game of prohibition is effectively a switch from illegitimate capital to legitimate capital. So one of the things that happens now is that venture capital begins to sniff around what are effectively emerging markets. And what began as a campaign for social justice and a reduction in prison population and a reduction in the oppression of uh, poor people and people of colour now turns into a a bidding war between people who want to buy stuff 
um, which now comes onto the licit market, which is not a comfortable place to be for, for those of us who joined for, for social justice reasons. The other thing, though, is, is that because of the time it's taken to reach here, and like I say, we didn't think it was going to happen much quicker, is that we now find ourselves in a position where, as one of the things that needs to happen across the world, and, and, and we're, we're, the reason we're called transform is because the effect of legalising drugs is transformational. If you think about what's going on in Mexico over the last 12 years, 200,000 people have killed each other fighting over drugs. 25,000 have disappeared. And it's caused massive loss of life and misery and displacement. And millions and millions of people have had their, their lives which in turn begets more drug use, I guess. Well, it does. And people, yeah, people use drugs for two basic reasons. One is to feel good and the other one is to stop feeling bad. The majority of people use drugs uh, to feel good, but there is a minority group who, who use drugs to stop feeling bad. And part of that is post-traumatic stress disorder. So we know that, that people who have had stressful upbringings or live in a context of conflict and war are more likely to find themselves using one drug or another. So we now find ourselves in a position where the, just as a, the, the, the global situation, so we're, we're operating to, to achieve global change that is going to benefit the most needy, the most disadvantaged, the most marginalised particularly. But at the same time, there are other global events happening, not least of which is a potential economic meltdown, combined with uh, a meltdown of, of the environment, if you like. So we're looking at global warming significantly impacting the environment for, for human beings over the next 10 years. So that whilst that's at the same, at the same time as that being the period during which the drug war will come to an end. It's also the point that temperatures rise to a point that becomes really, really problematic. And then it's a question really of what kind of world we want. So you asked me what does the world look like? The world could potentially look like one where you can go and buy ecstasy from a chemist and know that it's exactly 120 um, milligrams, but you've got no food to eat. And, and the, the, so, I find myself in this strange place of feeling quite uncomfortable with the, the whole, the economics of legalisation, which I don't like very much. I'm not naive enough to think it wasn't going to happen, but I thought I'd be out of it by now. And the other one is, is just the, the context in which everything takes place now is one of global warming. And if we're not attending to that, the question is, why are we doing the other stuff? What, what, what is the benefit? And I'm not saying there's none, but if you lean over to pick up 10p and 20 pound falls out your back pocket, you haven't won at the end of that situation. And that's potentially where we're getting to. Yeah. And going back to the original, you know, the, the reason why the drug laws came in, because someone could identify groups of people who could be oppressed and treated like crap differently than privileged people there is something that needs to happen whereby we just stop doing that and we have to actually recognize our what we hold in common to understand our shared humanity yeah yeah and then we'd all get it together there'd be a much better chance um and i think that is is the key and there are a number of keys here
But if, if we can, this is something I was thinking the other day, if we can stop using the term they, and that's pretty much what you'd have to do. So it's all we, it's all us. It all changes. So terrorists, if terrorists they be, aren't they, aren't them, they're us, the paedophiles. And all the people you hate, the 1%, all those people that, that, that we have identified as being other than us, which gives you something to rail against, some way of judging humanity not good enough to survive the flood or whatever it's going to be, that distracts us from, from recognising what it is that we need to do. And it is acting in common. And not just acting in common as a species, but acting in common with all the other species as well. And I speak as somebody who eats meat. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not even doing it myself. So I can talk the talk, but not walk it. So it's it's a bit of a weird one, but I think that 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 ultimately that is the big shift that needs to take place. It's 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 recognizing our common commonality of life, if you like. And then working towards preserving it and making sure that it's as good as it can be. Amazing. That's, I, yeah, excellent. I think that sounds like a really good note to end it on. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> uh, yeah, great. I think you've made some very good and interesting points. Thank it's you my very pleasure. Much. I'm a, hello, I'm a 60 year old woman living in Devon. And I wanted to ask a question uh, relating to my daughter. Um, she's uh, nearly 30 and she's been using heroin for quite a long time. Um, lately, she's been trying to reduce and cut out uh, heroin. And uh, she was um, encouraged to take Subutex, but she didn't get on very well with it. And she'd been trying to cut that out. The reason she didn't get on well with it was because she got really tired and she was also worried about the um, time it would take to come off Subutex once she was on that program of getting Subutex. Um, so I'm just uh, interested to know how, you know, what experience other people have had of trying to reduce their use of heroin without taking the substitute um, medications like Subutex and Methadone and wondering, you know, if there are stories of how people have done that, uh, what chances there are of success doing it that way. Um, because I'm concerned that, you know, heroin does um, make it hard, you know, makes it hard for you to give it up. It has all sorts of ways of tying you in. Um, so yeah, it'd just be really helpful to know what success other people have had doing it that way and how they've done it. There are lots of different ways offered to give up your addictions, uh, with the 12 steps possibly being the most famous one. They all, however, have varying levels of success and I think it's something that it has to be very much tailored to the individual. However, there are some themes which or there are some points which underpin all of these methods and these are a personal will 
and desire to want to give up by the addict themselves and a lot of patience, dedication and hard work. Three things which the addict is not particularly well known for. So this is the hardest thing in my opinion. It's very easy to have that moment of realization and that eureka moment and realizing that you don't want to do this anymore or you've screwed up or you've run out of money or you're sick of the lifestyle and you have that energy to want to make a change. Sustaining that though against events that happen in your life and the boredom and complacency with it I guess when that initial fiery desire wears off you're left with the stark reality that your comfort method is no longer there and you're gonna have to work towards finding something else it's really difficult going back to the stark reality without your first aid kit really and and this i think is where strategies which have been developed for relapse prevention are really useful going on to the state-backed opiate replacement service in my opinion doesn't really work or at least it didn't really work for me because because of time constraints and a lack of reward also i wasn't really changing my lifestyle in any other way and it's intended to stabilize you and make sure that you know that you have a constant source of your addiction and you don't have to worry about going through the withdrawals and that way it can stabilize your life enough so that you can then prepare to go into treatment or you can then make active steps to stabilize your finances or go into therapy and usually it's recommended to do this to go into this prescription service with also at the same time getting therapy and CBT and working through the reasons why you have this addiction in the first place. For me, it didn't really work because my life isn't really in that place. My life is pretty stable, relatively. And it was just replacing it, one thing with another. And actually, without the reward, it wasn't as good, basically. It just stopped me going into withdrawal, but I got no reward from it. So I was able to function, but I was still, again, very much trying to suddenly go into reality with no equipment, really, to to distract myself. I started going to meetings and I actually, I found these initially quite useful just to be around people who had had shared experiences and were going through the same thing. However, it very quickly got quite preachy. But the idea of the 12 steps I think can be quite useful, but it does involve a lot of religious imagery and a lot of kind of giving up your power um so these are the 12 steps one we admit we were powerless over alcohol or any other drug or addiction and that our lives have become unmanageable two we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity three make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of god as we understand him Four, make a searching and fearless moral inventory to, of ourselves. Five, admit to God, or uh, however we understand him, to ourselves and to other human beings the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we are entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, make a list of all persons we've harmed and become willing to make amends with them all. 9. Make direct amends with such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. 10. 
Continue to take personal inventory and when we are wrong, promptly admit it. 11. Seek through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. 12. Have a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps and try to carry the message to all alcoholics or other addicts and to practice these examples in all of their affairs. Now, I think there are some really useful points with the 12 steps. I think some of it is not so good, but I think that the idea of understanding that we are not 100% in control as well as making steps towards trying to make up for the wrongs that you've done or the guilt that you feel or some of that kind of inner hatred which is eating away at you which reaffirms the addictive behavior as you kind of try and cover it up or I think the idea of meditation and the idea of calm dispassionate curiosity about yourself is also really useful this idea which is also seen in CBT of taking a step back from your mind and looking at it critically and understanding where the faults are, where the flaws are, where the strengths are and also where the cravings come from. I think this is really important in terms of relapse prevention to to look at your life and understand where the danger areas are, where the cravings come from and how long they last for and how to deal with them when they come. Something that was also really useful, which I didn't expect from going to the meetings, was the opportunity to find a sponsor. A sponsor is somebody that has been through recovery, they're in a stable place, and they are willing to take on somebody who is new to recovery and to be there at the end of the phone or to meet up for cups of tea or to to really guide the new abstinent person through the first year or so of recovery. And It's so useful and I think this would be a number one priority if you are trying to become abstinent from your addiction without the help of any kind of medical replacement. Also, as well as having this external lifeline, being self-critical and self-aware is also essential. So my advice would be to spend 20 minutes or so every morning just to sit down with your mind, understand where you are, how you're feeling, where these feelings come from and to not to judge yourself but to be honest with yourself about how you're feeling and where these struggles might be coming from and are you just reaching for excuses to use or how is your relationship developing with the addiction and now this is similar to something which has developed from CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy and this is called ACT which is acceptance and commitment therapy which is advocated by Stephen Hayes And rather than CBT, which teaches you to recognise the tricks that your brain's playing on you and to ignore them and to move past them, this is kind of a, a method of conscious denial. Now, the acceptance and commitment therapy by Stephen Hayes is more, is not trying to force you to ignore these things that your brain is doing. It instead teaches you to accept them and to understand them and to to be slightly removed from it and to understand that it's not all up in your face and all consuming. So when your brain has these cravings or these thoughts, you can then look at it and be like, okay, I know what's going on, that's there, it's there because of this, that's fine, we're gonna deal with it, we're gonna take a step back and try to 
think of it in a different way that's not quite so all-consuming. Methods for ACT are suggested that you could give your brain a name, Gerald, for example, and so then you you separate it from yourself and you just, you know, like, oh, that's just Gerald playing up again. All right, mate, how's it going? All right, nice to see you around here. And you treat it, I don't know, like a friendly neighbour who's quite irritating sometimes. Also, you could say these thoughts that you have in silly voices or you could sing them or you could give it a character another idea is to visualize yourself having these thoughts as a child or think back to your earliest memory of this kind of thought as a child and then picture the child saying it in a child's voice and this can pull from yourself feelings of compassion and kindness and it helps you to empathize with yourself rather than trying to push it out and deny it. And then you, you learn to treat yourself with a bit more kindness. So yeah, there's, there's all of these ideas. As I said before, at the top of the question, that underlying it all is work and constant vigilance and maintaining that desire. So in order to maintain that desire, you could write lists about the pros and cons and where you're at, or you could take up... F- For example, what I've done with this podcast is I've taken up an activity which I can't really do when I'm high because I can't think or vocalise really what I need to. So instead I'm channelling my energy into this, which distracts me and I feel passionate about this. So it helps me to prioritise and to understand that there are things that I'm interested in which aren't just about getting high and this helps to keep my motivation with staying clean and not relapsing. So my key points for staying abstinent or getting over addiction without medical help would be to channel the energy into a project which you feel passionate about, which you can't necessarily do when you're high or is different from anything that you've done in your previous habitual behaviour, as well as writing down the reasons why you want to give up and the revelations that you have that made you want to change your patterns of behaviour maybe carry that with you so that you have a constant reminder of why you're doing what you're doing also find yourself a sponsor and be open and honest with that sponsor find people who are in a similar situation who are not currently addicts to whatever it is that troubles you uh, but have been through that and give your brain a break you know take a step back from it be critical of yourself and be accepting and positive towards wherever you're at just within yourself so take a step back and view these cravings and the struggles that you're going through with as I said before which is a quote from Stephen Hayes uh, dispassionate curiosity that would be my advice And that's it. That's all we've got time for today. Thank you very much for listening. As always, feel free to contact me, Kenzo, on 07521 And we can add them into the show next week where we'll be talking about the similarities between eating disorders and addiction and ideas of giving up control. We'll have another interview with somebody who suffered from eating disorder for a number of years. All right, thanks for listening. Bye.